everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. When it comes to startup acquisitions, Taraj Parang is in a class of his own. He has helped companies exit to LinkedIn, Instacart, Vistaprint, Postmates, and many more. Plus, he has also been on the acquirer side of deals throughout his many years in Silicon Valley, including time spent at GoDaddy and Webs. On today's episode, we talk all about his recent book, Exit Path, How to Win the Startup Endgame, which is available now, and dives deep into the lessons he's learned along the way. Plus, he gives acquisition do's and don'ts to startup founders who are just entering this playing field. Enjoy today's episode. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning at business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Taraj, welcome to the show. Great to be on the show, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I was looking at your background and you were like, I'm going to call you an OG in the Silicon Valley era. Like I looked at all the things you did and it seems like you have a wealth of knowledge and now you're writing this new book. But before we get into that, I want to hear bullet points of key moments in your history and your timeline that got you here. Yes, absolutely. Yes, you're right. I've been around the block a few times uh, and I I would say I have had a very non-linear, unconventional career path. You can't even call it a path. Probably it's more like a helix. Because a lot of times I kept going back and doing the same thing, but differently. Mm-hmm. So I give you some of the highlights. Stanford undergrad, that's when I, when I fell in love with Bay Area, the Silicon Valley culture, entrepreneurship and innovation. And went to law school uh, at Yale and then came back immediately after. Couldn't, couldn't uh, take the cold uh, weather uh, out there on the East Coast. Started practicing law as a corporate securities attorney. And that was really my front row seat to seeing how deals are structured in Silicon Valley and how entrepreneurs and the whole ecosystem around them come together 
to make these startups work. I kind of got the bug uh, and uh, wanted to get on the business side as fast as I could. So after actually practicing only nine months as a lawyer, I jumped ship and joined a venture capital firm. It was a European firm, wanted to open an office in Silicon Valley, happened to be at the right place at the right time and uh, became an associate at a VC firm. And in a way, that's where I got my MBA on the job. Uh, So I was a VC for three, four years. So a lot of business plans and uh, talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and realized that if I ever wanted to kind of really be good at being an investor, I actually had to probably do a company myself. But I didn't have the courage. And that was like a kind of a bit of a recession, kind of not unlike today, but we had the 99, 2000 downturn uh, and then 2001 to 2004. It wasn't uh, great uh, in, the, in the venture world. So I actually went back to law, practiced law for under two years and reconfirmed my initial assessment that it wasn't a profession for me. <laughs> hey, at least you tried again. You spent so much money. You might as well give it another shot. Exactly. No, that is, that's exactly the thought. You know, all that investment in three years of law school mm-hmm. and, you know, I kind of had put everything on hold. But I realized, no, it's not for me. I have a lot of respect for lawyers and what they do. It's hard work. But I felt really this pull towards innovation and creating uh, products and being in a startup myself. So I actually started my, own, my first company in 2005, did a few startups since then, and some of them failed, some of them succeeded, kind of the whole spectrum. And, and I realized at some point that I also wanted to get the perspective of the bigger company and more on the acquirer side. So all these startups I had were acquired. So now I wanted to be on the acquirer side. So I joined GoDaddy right before they went public, was on the corp dev and business development side of the house, leading a number of uh, strategic initiatives, acquiring companies, um, things of that sort. I joined GoDaddy because of our mission, uh, which was to tilt the global economy towards small business. But I stayed because I loved the culture, the energy, the team we had. It's just uh, some of the best people I'd ever worked with and I could learn from were there at, during my tenure. So I was lucky, lucky to be there with them. And I had on the side started a project that got sold actually to Postmates and a very good friend of mine had joined Postmates to lead their special divisions project, Postmates X. Postmates, for those of your listeners that may not know, is a food delivery company that got acquired by Uber. So in 2017, my friend joined Postmates again because of an acquisition of a startup we had worked on. And that was the origin of what became known as Serve Robotics. So they started building robots that would do food delivery. And before Uber acquired Postmates, they actually started thinking about uh, spinning out uh, Serve Robotics as an independent entity. But then the Uber acquisition put that on hold for a little bit. After the dust settled on that acquisition, last year, basically, the team talked to Uber and decided to spin out and become a separate entity. I helped with the spin-out process and joined as the chief operating officer of Serve Robotics. So I've been in that seat for the past 18 months. So Okay, amazing. I mean, so many questions. When did you start getting the itch to write a book, though? And first, what is your book's name? And then, yeah, when did you get that itch? Yes. So in my ample free time... <laughs> um, that's what I'm wondering. Like, where did it come from? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I realized that uh, after sort of my third startup, uh, I saw a couple of patterns repeating themselves in my entrepreneurial journeys. In fact, my first startup 
there was a very big lesson I learned from it, which I sort of did the opposite my next one and saw very different results, radically different results. And then ever since I had been talking to entrepreneurs and mentoring them or investing as an angel investor, I'd always been kind of giving them these tips about how do you start a business that has a viable exit strategies and exit options. So the name of the book is Exit Path, which is uh, really about that topic. And part of it is because I didn't want to say the same thing over and over again. So I could just point people to a book and uh-huh. say, look, you want to <laughs> first read the book. Uh, and, but second one, I felt like I really wanted to give back. And because I felt that the lessons I learned were so crucial that anyone could benefit from them and not make the same mistakes. Because whenever I think startups succeed, we all win. I'm a cheerleader for entrepreneurs and uh, we need to have more entrepreneurs out there. And the you know, odds of success for startups are so slim, mm-hmm. right? So the statistics are most of them don't make it. The majority don't even return the money invested in them. But I think it's just such a loss because so much promise is in each startup. So much talent goes into it. And if we can just shift those odds a little bit and make sure those startups all have even a small percentage of them have a much better chance of succeeding. I think we all win as a society. So that was my convoluted set of uh, reasons uh, that led to my starting to jot down my notes and then kind of socializing it with other entrepreneurs and getting their feedback. So it took a five-year process from start to finish. And then I also felt like I've been in a very unique position um, because I have sat in every seat around the table in Silicon Valley. So I've been a lawyer, been an entrepreneur, I've been an investor, VC investor, angel investor, and also a corporate acquirer. So I kind of had this 360 view of what this acquisition process looks like. And I felt like I could perhaps make a unique contribution and Mm -hmm. and kind of advance uh, the cause of entrepreneurship a little bit. I love that. I love that. Okay. Well, today it's amazing because I'm just going to act as your student. So everyone listening gets to kind of walk through this journey of what it would be like to have you as a one-on-one mentor. So to start, my first question is, what size company do you need to have to start thinking about an exit? Like, do you need to be past a certain point in revenue? Or, I mean, you definitely probably need a product, but like, when would you even start to help people think about this? Yeah, I would say the sooner you can think about it, the higher your chances of success. And the reason for that is that it actually takes quite a bit of time and soul searching to define what success really means for you and your startup. Even before that, what is the mission of your startup, right? So kind of really internalizing and understanding that and connect with that mission, understand what the future strategic trajectory for your startup is, and then kind of work backwards and say, okay, well, if this is success, how can I make sure I have my best chances of achieving that success? And I think once you go through that exercise, you realize that a lot of times any one startup may not be in a position to achieve its full potential by itself. Mm -hmm. So you need an ecosystem of partners, strategic partners, others around your company to help it reach its full potential and, and to achieve its mission. So all of this takes time, this realization. And then once you have the realization, you have a strategic trajectory, actually implementing that strategy and trying to take small steps towards its realization and execution takes time 
building strategic relationships with potential acquirers. Well, you know, once you even know who they are, you have to think about why would they even want to acquire me? And what are the things I can do to make myself more appealing to them or more interesting to them and vice versa? What would I look for in, in a potential acquirer as well as how do I get to know them? Mm-hmm. How do I make them comfortable with what? You know, at GoDaddy, for instance, we did over 20 acquisitions while I was there. And on average, we had known the entrepreneurs and the startups for many years, more than a year at the very least. So growing those relationships, uh, cultivating uh, them, strengthening them takes time. So my advice is to, to your question, start as early as you can, even, even at the inception. Think about, you know, what would success look like, right? And, and that is a fruitful exercise regardless of whether or not you end up selling. So um, in fact, even when you're going public, having strategic uh, acquirers uh, that are vying for your business, even if you're going public, uh, (laughs) puts you in a much more, much better place than not having them. The statistics are that for every IPO, there are 30 acquisitions. So chances are the success path for any startup is an acquisition. And there are probably among your listeners, those that don't even think about an acquisition or IPO. They just want to build a business that's self-sustaining, right? And there's nothing wrong with that either. But I think even for those businesses, it's good to think about, okay, well, if I were to sell my business, who would be the right buyer? And what would they find valuable in my business? Because those things would make your business valuable. So you should work on them. Yep. Yeah. I had a, I'll call him kind of a mentor who was talking about just this, of like, when you think about your company, you would basically position your company in the language of like, what's valuable to them. So maybe if you had, I'll just say 10 users that they really want, you would basically just talk about that. How do you think about doing that? Like when you find someone and you even think they might be any bit interested, I mean, what if they're a big company? How do you even explore starting that conversation to then be able to be like, and here's the pieces that are valuable to you? Yes. So yeah, that's, that's really the courtship phase, I would say. Um, and uh, in my book, I call it the long game. And it can take multiple years. And so uh, I think what you want to do is to, first of all, get to know who are these other companies that could be interested in you, understand what their needs are, understand how they're even structured. Even within a big company, you may be talking to multiple different divisions and they may not even know that you're talking to each one of those. So, mm-hmm. so depending on how big they are, they could have hundreds of thousands of employees, right? Your business could mean different things for different parts of the, their organization. So understanding what their needs are, how are they uh, formed, who would be the right champion, like identifying a champion for you inside that organization. A lot of people start with business development or corporate development as their entry point. Nothing wrong with that. But those functions, uh, having been on, in those seats, don't actually make the deals happen. So the, you kind of get to, you need to get to know their business decision makers, the people who have P&L responsibility, mm-hmm. right? Product owners. Yep. Product owners, GMs, presidents, like folks with those titles. They care about the roadmap of where their company is going and where their product is going and what offerings they need to put in front of their customers, right? 
And, you know, as you said, in initial phases, you don't want to go with a for sale sign and say, hey, (laughs) I want to sell my company. Would you guys be interested? Which I think would definitely not be the right thing to do. Even if you really intend to sell, I think what your intention initially should be is to discover and understand and find out whether there is a mutual strategic overlap between where you're taking your business and that other big company, Potential Aquarius, is going and get to know them, do information sharing, add value to those conversations, because even big companies don't have all the information. So if you can come into those conversations with a piece of data, maybe you know something about a specific customer segment that they don't know, um, you kind of elevate your profile in their view. So then when they are actually looking to expand in that area, you would be in their consideration set. I got, okay, so you're essentially using these meetings to not only be able to showcase where you're going and what you're doing, but also get information on maybe like what KPIs are they having a hard time hitting or like what are they struggling to do right now? And then kind of painting that picture subtly of like, eventually it could just be my company that does that for you. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. Um, yeah, just really not assuming anything about your counterparts is always a great place to start with. Even if you do assume something, kind of have the intellectual humility to say, hey, look, I'm thinking if I was in your shoes, X, Y, and Z would be my top priorities. Am I thinking this the right way? How are you seeing this world? I'm curious, why haven't you tried, let's say, an advertising revenue model versus a subscription model, right? So you kind of, you can tease out by being sort of curious, you can tease out a lot of information, which can really help you in your negotiations. At the end of the day, information is power, especially when it comes to negotiations and acquisitions, of course, uh, (laughs) the biggest negotiation any company would ever enter into and the most outcome defining one. So you got to be prepared and you got to, and the best way to prepare is have all that information about your counterparts. Yeah. Especially if you have client meetings, it's a 30 minute block and it's bi-weekly. I'm like, you should use every minute of that 30 minutes with asking questions and what's going on. I mean, there should never be a time when that meeting is short because there's so much information you can gather from your clients in that meeting that would be completely lost if you were like, oh, okay, my agenda's, you know, only this today. All right, see ya. There's just so much power in like every moment that you get to talk to, you know, your customers, clients, or of course, someone that you might want to buy you one day. Absolutely. And, and one mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make, even when they're courting VCs and investors, is that they want to project this confidence and sort of sometimes they over <laughs> project mm-hmm. that and they lose that intellectual humility a little bit in the process. And they by trying to project this competence and confidence level that may not truly correlate with the data, they actually shut down conversations. I think going in with an inquisitive mind, with curiosity about, hey, you know, this is how we see the world. Tell us if, if you think we are right. Uh, this is these are some of the data points we are seeing. I'm curious X, Y, and Z. I think those types of conversations are a lot more information producing and productive for entrepreneurs. Yeah. So thinking about a lot of the guests I've had on the show, you know, many of them from different CPG brands or beauty, where I'm like, oh, you're so gonna get a like you will have the option to get acquired if you want it. I'm sure my listeners out there, same thing. They have companies that you know, well, probably one day getting acquired, especially in this more like consolidation world. How can we wrap up brands? What do you think, you know, about when a company comes in and does, you know, have interest in acquiring your company? Like, what should you do? 
Yes, yes. So hopefully it's not a surprise to you. Uh, if it is, then that means you haven't really uh, built those relationships properly. But if um, I would say if you have thought about your exit strategy and you've had some internal sessions with your key stakeholders, perhaps recruited some key advisors and mentors, people who have been through the process, if you are prepared, then when somebody comes inbound to you, you kind of know what to do, right? Which is, first of all, you kind of start asking questions rather than reacting. Uh, it's like inquire, why are they interested? What value do they see? What do they plan to do with your, with your company? It's not all about how, how much are they willing to pay? I mean, this is your baby, right? <laughs> a lot of times I've seen people sell to folks that have paid less, but they have actually had a strategic trajectory that was much more aligned with the mission and where they wanted their startup to go. So kind of really use that opportunity, that inbound, of course, you've got to celebrate it, be excited that you have one company out there, at least that's interested in what you have built and worked so hard on. So absolutely, uh, you know, take a moment and just clap for yourself and your team. But after that, just inquire, understand, and not only understand their strategy, but understand who's going to be involved, who makes the decision sometimes. It has happened a lot that somebody gets overly excited about a prospect of acquiring a target. And then when they kind of go up the chain, that gets shut down. So kind of you got to understand, okay, what's the track record of this person who is expressing interest to you? What authority, influence, experience do they have with acquisitions? Is it the first time ever they have done an acquisition? That person or maybe that company itself has never done an acquisition before. So there's a lot to inquire and find out. Now, if you have done, gone through the process yourself before or you have surrounded yourself with people who have, they can kind of guide you and coach you. But definitely the last thing you want to do is jump into a, like a price discussion. <laughs> uh, that should be the last thing, right? Uh, first thing should be about strategy, about understanding really the nuts and bolts of how could actually these two companies work together and come together and see what's the value they see in you, right? The next thing, of course, is if this is not the highest acquirer on your wish list of potential acquirers, you could reach out to the others as well and see, hey, look, you've had an inbound interest. That's a perfect time, perfect reason to approach other acquirers. Again, hopefully you have cultivated relationships with them because you don't want the first encounter you have with someone be, hey, hello, <laughs> I'm here. Uh, I do X, Y, and Z. And by the way, you have a week to tell me whether or not you want to buy my company because I have an exploding offer. So that's, again, another one of those reasons uh, you want to start as soon as you can and build these relationships over time. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office, and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine, and maybe even plant medicine, who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't talk about. 
publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. So you mentioned, you know, keeping the price till the end. One thing, I mean, I would love to hear your perspective on is how you think about valuations, because everything that I see, I'm like, I just think it's dumb. Depending on, oh, you're in this industry, you're going to get 20x multiple, whereas you're in this industry and it's 4x. And I was reading a paper where yeah, this person was essentially saying, like, you never use those numbers, never use valuation numbers. That's such a Silicon Valley thing to do. We're not doing that anymore. And instead, you look at, you know, what we mentioned before, what is your value prop- proposition? And how valuable is that to the company acquiring you? Like if they're normally paying $100 per user and they're going to make this much in revenue, like you back into their numbers based off knowing that. And then you get to that valuation instead of just using some random multiple. But you're in Silicon Valley. So you tell me, like, what do you think about that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, there are multiple things that come into valuation for an acquisition. And it's not unlike what happens when you're looking at investment valuation, right? When you're raising venture money or any money. Of course, benchmarks are helpful. They're directionally helpful, but they don't determine your valuation because each company is unique. You know, you, you have a different growth profile. You have a different margin profile, profitability. Your team is unique. So, the capabilities uh, that your product has could be very, uh, very unique. There's not, not two cookie-cutter companies that you can say, okay, because X, this is Y. However, acquirers have their own valuation constraints. So they have to kind of bring that context into what they're authorized, really, in their fiduciary obligations <laughs> to their own shareholders to pay. And so there, there are some constraints, like right? let's say, you know, if a public market is valuing a company at, you know, 13x EBITDA, well, if they're paying more for your startup, there has to be a very compelling reason. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, you're growing faster or you, you have better upsell opportunities. Uh, your, your user base is very unique. So all of these come into a valuation conversation. There are components of value. There are the assets that you have, your team, your IP. Those are, those are values. There's revenue that you're generating. There's a growth trajectory. It's a more of an art than a science to, to value things. But benchmarks, other transactions, public company benchmarks, other acquisitions in, in a space could provide some anchors. Of course, the sellers always anchor to the highest and the buyers anchor to the lowest. So it kind of gives you a little bit of a band. Ultimately, to get leverage, you have to have multiple options as a seller. And then you set the valuation. You, you, you decide for yourself, is this how much I'm willing to accept to give up my ownership interest in this company or part of my ownership interest? And that's it's also a calculation about what do you think the future will look like? What are the risks of executing against your plans? So each person has a very different risk appetite. Uh, again, that informs their judgment. But to get the best possible valuation, which may not be what you think you're worth, but that's what the market says, you do need to have options. So other acquirers, of course, are great sources of options. Also, having a business that's uh, self-sustaining and doesn't have to be sold is a fantastic leverage position because you know you can tell the acquirer, look, unless you, you make us an offer that stops us in our tracks, we are happy where we're going. We don't have an urgent need to sell. It's the best place to be in. <laughs> yes. 
And another option, of course, is if, if you're running out of money, but you have investors, you have term sheets from investors who are willing to invest. And again, that gives you the luxury of not having to jump at an offer. The worst position you can find yourself is where I found myself in my first startup, which is you get hit by a recession and you haven't cultivated those relationships with potential acquirers and you only have six months of cash runway left in the bank. That is not where you want to find your friend. And that's why I kind of wrote this book, because as a way to warn entrepreneurs that those eventualities are quite likely. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs find themselves, and unfortunately, in that position right now, of course, I had no idea there would be a pandemic when I started writing the book or we would be faced with a recession. But it is very similar to what we faced in 2008, 2009, and in 2000, 2001. So mm. these things seem to happen. Yeah, I mean... I- History repeats itself in different ways. So like, what are some of the important pieces that founders forget to prepare for? I mean, of course, find the right, you know, acquiring partners, make those relationships, all of that, of course, make a good company, duh. But like, what are some things maybe they forget to do? Like maybe when it comes to building up their own IP or getting their house in order, like what kind of things should they be doing? I think one of the, and maybe I'm biased because I come from the legal profession, but with that disclaimer, I think having a great lawyer and, and legal representation always is, is really important. I think a lot of founders may be a little bit more price sensitive than they need to be when they are hiring law firms. But if you are getting close to a stage where you think an, a, trans, a serious transaction like this may be happening, I would say have great legal representation. And, and by that, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm talking about folks who have been there, done that in terms of M&A. The other one is having advisors that have been, again, through the process. Lawyers are great at kind of mitigating risk, identifying risk, and kind of making sure you're following the right process. But also having business folks involved, they're much better, I would say, at identifying opportunities. So you kind of need to have the yin and yang of those two. So uh, they, they help you basically negotiate. Could be you know, an investment bank, if your deal is large enough, or it could just be an advisor, someone who has been through the steps a few times before, uh, fellow CEOs, uh, executives, leaders, etc. Like we had that at several of my startups, and we just benefited tremendously from their help and their uh, mentorship. The other thing is that, of course, get starting to put your documents, your kind of house in order, having metrics that you can show to potential acquirers. It's not very different from what you would do when you're preparing for a venture fundraising round. Um, Just when somebody wants to look under the hood and look at your business, you want to be ready for that. Because one of the things that kills deals is uh, time. Time, I I, I like to say time kills every deal. (laughs) So once you have that deal momentum going, you don't want to, this is such a precious thing. You don't want to lose it. So be ready, be prepared, have your, uh, you know, data room. uh, Now it's virtual data room, ready with your documents, your metrics, your dashboards, just the basics of your business in one place. So at least people can get started with their diligence. Now, diligence usually is a beast of its own and can take as long as you give it. There are strategies I actually talk about in my book on how to kind of bring it to a close and make sure the diligence is productive. (laughs) But you got to be ready and you have to do your homework and not wait for the time where you are faced with a big diligence questionnaire 
to then start gathering the documents because it's a little too late. Also, you have to be organized as a business person anyway. So, Yeah, might as well. For your company that it didn't go so well when it came to like an acquisition perspective, like what happened? I want to hear the story and then maybe what you learned for the next one that went better. Yes. Yes. So just stepping back in 2005, we started this company that had this uh, called Jackster, which uh, had the promise of kind of bringing social communications to your mobile phone. Now, this might sound strange uh, to your listeners today, but back then, mobile phones were not smart. Mm -hmm. The iPhone did not exist. So what we were trying to do was actually connect through text messaging and phone calls, um, connect that identity with your virtual identity on social media networks like MySpace and Friendster. Again, names that many Uh may, may not have heard before. Oh, I was on MySpace, yeah, those days. (laughs) <laughs> yes, great. So we had a widget that you could put on your MySpace page uh-huh. and uh, people could p- type in their phone number. It would give you a call. It would call the person that was on MySpace and you could talk to each other or could send text messages to each other. So it, would, it was an interesting concept. It actually took off very rapidly and we weren't unique. There were like three other companies that were trying to do a similar thing. It was called Voice Over IP, which is kind of like taking voice uh, from the cellular network and putting it on the IP networks. Skype was doing it with desktop phones and laptops. We were trying to do it now with mobile phones, uh, but dumb feature phones rather than smartphones. There was a bit of a disruption, of course, when iPhone came, uh, but we, we created an app and we started uh, kind of we adapted to that. We were growing really fast. Again, I mentioned we raised $20 million. We went from zero to 10 million users in the first year of launch won a number of awards. So we were quite happy with where we were. And I would say hubris setting. We were kind of arrogant. We were like, okay, we don't need any strategic partners. We don't need any acquisitions. Uh, We even said that in the press release that we are not even considering that. We're going all the way to IPO. We're going to be a billion dollar company and we're, we're just going for the gold. What happened was, of course, 2008 and 2009 hit. The Great Recession, no venture money was very hard to have. It's very similar to what we're experiencing right now. A lot of VCs kind of pulled back, started nursing their existing portfolios, not making new investments. Because we were so focused on growth, we had deprioritized converting our free users to paid users. It was a freemium model. And those funnels needed to be immediately fixed. And to do that, as uh, you know, and many of your listeners know, you need a lot of experience, you need time to tune your monetization funnels. We just didn't have that time. We had only six months before our cash would run out. So um, we pivoted to finding acquirers. Again, we had not cultivated any relationships. All those other companies that had kind of started around the same time with us, they had, they had actually growth by strategic partnership strategy, and they all got acquired. Grand Central got acquired by Google, which became Google Voice. Ribbit got acquired by British Telecom. Jaja got acquired by Telefonica. And these were acquisitions from 50 million to 200 million in range. And they are similar to your company. Very similar. Uh In fact, I would say, again, I may be biased. We had the better technology. We had more awards. We had raised more VC money. Jeez. Um, The better team. Yeah. Uh, But we couldn't. Come on. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Maybe that was a downfall. So uh, we couldn't find any real strategic uh, acquirer. We we found one who was a small company that was basically building a similar network in India. 
and we basically did a fire sale and it wasn't financially or in any way uh, returning any money to our investors. So it was pretty much a done deal. So that was tough, painful, worked on it for four years and a lot of people had high hopes and I was devastated really. So it took me six months to recover and to examine what had happened. (laughs) It just was a whirlwind. Did you examine the other companies, like sit down and do a whole case study on all the other companies that had good acquisitions? In a way, I kind of had a sense. So basically, it came down to our decision, right? One management decision, one key decision we made was that we would not look for or spend any time on distribution partnership or strategic partnerships. We would just focus on our viral growth and figuring out how to do it alone. And that, that was just a key, one of those prioritization decisions we made, which in hindsight was the wrong one. So with my next startup, the first thing I did, and I joined a startup that had actually been um, been growing nicely, but had kind of reached a plateau. So I joined as a head of strategy and corporate development to kind of try to figure out whether we could have a breakout scenario. So with that startup, the first thing I did, we did a strategy offsite. And I took the whole leadership team and we did this exercise where we kind of created our wish list of who would be our potential acquirers. Even though we're not planning to sell, who would they be? Why would they be interested in acquiring us? And what we came back with was a number of names like Intuit, Vistaprint, folks who were actually had a very keen interest in uh, small businesses. And what we had, this next company was called Webs, was a generic website creation platform. So anybody could come and create a website on our platform, including small businesses. And we had 30 million of them. Wow. And again, freemium model. Uh, yeah, it was a company no one in Silicon Valley had heard of because it was based in Silver Spring, Maryland. Hey, that's from, not Silver Spring, but I'm from Maryland, the Eastern Shore, though. Oh, like, very nice. Yeah, awesome. Okay. <laughs> very nice. Um, so, yeah, so the, I joined, I was actually the only person in Silicon Valley. My mission was to kind of connect this company to Silicon Valley and figure out what's our strategic future. When we made, we did that exercise, the kind of what does success mean and who are the potential acquirers, we realized that there's something in the small business segment that we may not be paying close attention to. So we went back and did a deep dive of our data and realized that the small business cohort among all of our users were the ones that would that would retain the most. They they monetized the best. They were um, complained the least. <laughs> you know. So uh, so we realized that we had a gem here. But we just needed to double down and attract more small businesses and complete our solution to be uh, actually to meet their needs a lot better than it did today. So we pivoted the company to be a small business uh, platform rather than just a generic website creation tool. And that entailed acquiring other companies ourselves so that we had a CRM solution through acquisition that came to us. We had also a social uh, so on Facebook, kind of how to create Facebook pages for your business. Uh, we added social, we added mobile through a strategic partnership with Duda Mobile. And so once we did that, then we also started talking to potential acquirers and as distribution partners, potentially. And uh, one thing led to another. And within two years, we were in an enviable position of having multiple acquisition interests. And we sold that over 10x revenue um, to Vistaprint in 2011. Mm, wow. Okay. That's awesome having both perspectives, though. 
And interesting that you chose to go back into another freemium business where you're like, this time I'm going to get it. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm, I'm telling you, it's like, I keep going back. You are in a helix. <laughs> and doing it differently. <laughs> I like it. You're like reliving things and yes. yeah, bringing even more smarts back to the original problem. <laughs> It's Groundhog Day. There you go. I like it. You need your own movie where every day Taraj wakes up. It's like, I'm solving this one differently. Today's the day. Right. Oh. Um, but it's been fun. It's been, uh, it, it's been, and, and also I've also given that advice to many other entrepreneurs uh, since, mm-hmm. and I have seen the results of that. So that's kind of also when I felt like, okay, I have something here that mm-hmm. more people ought to know about it. Yep. Yep. I love it. So what's one thing that didn't make it into the book? But you're like, oh, if I were to write another one, this topic needs to be covered, or I had to take this out because it got too long. So, you know, this is perhaps the philosophy geek in me, but there is, I have always this fascination with personal identity and what constitutes identity over time. Okay, go on. (laughs) So this is something I studied as an undergrad in philosophy at Stanford as well. So there are different theories about it. Is it our memories? Is it our physical body? Like if you start, like, you know, there's this this Decius's ship kind of example that like if you're removing one plank at a time over time, uh, do you still have the ship? And what if you remove those planks and build another ship while you're doing that? So anyway, there are all these funny thought experiments, right, as to what constitutes identity. I really wanted to go into this with startups and talk about identity of startups over time. And also, especially in an acquisition, right? Is an acquisition a death of a startup or is it a rebirth Mm -hmm. in another form, right? So I had to cut it out. Uh, It is just my my, my editor was- I was so intrigued. I was ready for this. Okay. (laughs) My my editor was like, this this book is too long as it is. So we need to make it a lot more manageable. So Uh I I took out a third of the book out. So, but that's one thing that if I had to go back, perhaps the philosophy geek in me would want to geek out on it a little bit more. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure people in this environment would be very interested, especially if you were like doing case studies on the companies that are acquiring startups and doing well versus the ones that aren't, or even I know, like thinking about my Google days, they would acquire startups and like literally leave them like on the other side of campus. Like we didn't even see them. We didn't even have the same cafes as them. Like they kept them so separate. And I'm like, did that work? I don't know. Is that the best way? But you hear of all these big CPG brands doing the same thing, acquiring these snack companies and just keeping them in their own little startup hub and not letting the environment like infiltrate them. But that could be an interesting book to Raj. I mean, I know you just got done your first and it hasn't even released yet, but <laughs> when you're ready, it could be cool. Right. That's actually, you've given me a lot of thoughts. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if I will write a book in the immediate near future because this was uh, quite a long, <laughs> I oh, need sure. to take a break and my family is sick and tired of me disappearing oh, into a corner. Yep. Into your wine house. I'm going to call yes, it your wine my, house. My <laughs> wine uh, room. Yes. That you can see in the background <laughs> uh-huh. here. Um, <laughs> but uh, they need me back. So probably not for the next year, but if I go back to it, definitely. Okay. So if you were to leave this interview and give one thought-provoking tip to a founder or CEO, what would that be to get them kind of going down this path? Well, I, I would like, this is a weird thing about human psychology. So I did a survey of a number of entrepreneurs I know, and I asked them a bunch of questions. And uh, as I was thinking about the book, I asked them a bunch of questions. One of the questions was, how likely do you think are the chances of success for any startup? And the answers range in the zero <laughs> to a 
20% range, right? Which is pretty in line with statistics. So it's like, great. Then I asked a bunch of other questions to distract them a little bit. And then I asked, how likely is it for you to succeed, do you think? And pretty much everyone, it was an almost certainty, right? Yeah, 98%. <laughs> There's a 2% I'm unsure of. <laughs> yeah, so they're, they're all... Uh-huh. Pretty sure they're going to succeed. So no one believes that they're average, right? No one believes that the statistics apply to them. And so uh, there's this kind of optimism bias, or is it kind of a blind spot that we don't really see reality always. Um, but it's it's helpful to look at the numbers and kind of take a step back and kind of dispassionately assess what are realistic chances and make strategic decisions based on reality as it is, not as how we wish for it to be. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of one thought I would li- like to leave your listeners with, which is like, even if you don't think that selling your startup is something in the near future and that you're going to make it just like we did at Jackster, everything is going your way. Just have that plan, right? Have that in your back pocket. You're not going to regret it. It's actually going to help you build a much stronger business with a lot more strategic options and Im- improve its value. That's kind of the one thought I would want to leave your audience with. That's good. That's thought-provoking. I like it. Taraj, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can our listeners find out more about you and get your book when it's out in the world? Oh, thank you, Stephanie, for, for the great conversation. My book is Exit Path. Uh, it's on Amazon. Uh, it's available for pre-order even before its launch. I also have a website, exitpath.net. I could not get the .com, so <laughs> exitpath.net. Even, even a GoDaddy employee cannot uh, rig that system. <laughs> and yes, I'm also very kind of socials like LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. So uh, you can find me there as well. Amazing. Thanks so much, Taraj. My pleasure. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.